cliffcentral.com. All right. Well, it is time for us to welcome Prof. Christopher Paul Zabo, who is the host of Beyond Madness, to the show this morning. It's been a long time since we had him on the show, but not the first time. And, of course, Beyond Madness is on to season three. I also have to mention that we uh, won an award, and they were a finalist for this show in the new, in the new Gen Awards in the category Best Use of a Podcast to Promote a Brand. Of course, it is worth mentioning also the excellent work that Adcock Ingram OTC, the sponsors of Brave, have brought to the party because they have made this podcast possible and they are strong advocates for mental health and for making sure that people talk about mental health issues and make them less taboo. We've got into so many interesting discussions. Um, Every episode has been fascinating in its own way. And uh, Prof Zabo really does bring amazing guests to the party as well. So it's a great pleasure to welcome him to the show today. How are you, Prof? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. Good morning. Can you, morning. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. You sound great. Excellent. And I've even got headphones so that I can hear you. Very impressed, Prof. You're getting technologically uh, very adept here on the show. No, no, so- listen. We had, a, we had a problem with one of our previous guests. Yeah. where he didn't have headphones and he forgot to mention that he had uh, us coming through on speaker. And so <laughs> there was great. constant feedback. And every time I would speak, I would have this talking in my head and I would say, oh, hang on a sec, something's not right here. And eventually I-, I-, I called the engineer and I said, listen, what the hell is going on? And nobody could figure it out. And only at the end of the episode, he kind of gingerly says, uh, could this have been the problem? <laughs> and I'm like, right. Okay, we shall re-record. So listen, Prof, first of all, congratulations on an incredible three seasons and, and counting at this point. Uh, some amazing episodes, and every single one of them, as I said just now, has been fascinating in its own right. You, you, you're delving into areas that aren't necessarily to do just with psychiatry or psychiatric medicine and the things people would expect you to talk about, the things that you've spent much of your career focused on. But all kinds, all manner of things, assisted suicide, um, companion animals, uh, you know, the psychological support animals. They're, you've covered such incredible ground on this. Just give us a, a, a list of your highlight episodes because I think people who haven't listened to the season yet need to get involved and, and listen right from the start. But what have been your favorites? Well, I think that the one that really caught me emotionally – because, you know, I think when, you, when you're interviewing guests on difficult uh, 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 subject matter, you know, one, one maintains a kind of a professional demeanor and, and, and you, you hold on to your emotions. But the one that caught me was the trauma of loss episode from, from, from last season, so to speak, um, where the mom had given an account of her son shooting himself and her finding the body and she she works as a counselor at um, compassionate friends and i think that i kind of held it together for the entire episode and just right at the very end uh there was this surge of emotion that just kind of came up from nowhere and you know you uh, when you have that feeling where you're just trying to push something down but it just keeps pushing back stronger mm. and it caught me right at the very end and um I kind of uh, had a little emotional moment, and I asked everybody just to to keep it in because I felt that it was really you know 
authentic in the sense that that was really how I felt. I couldn't explain it because I had been very kind of, you know, as I said, professional up to that moment, came from nowhere. So that was a very powerful episode. And I think that's the one that really stands out in my, in my mind. I mean, all of them are special in their own way. I think they're different. Some are more emotionally demanding, some um, more emotionally draining in, in, in terms of the content. Others a little bit lighter, but always, always serious in their own way. Because I think that each of the, the episodes deals with an issue. And as much as it emanates from within psychiatry, I think it really does give a lot of information to non-psychiatrists, non-professionals, mm. the general public out there, just to get a sense of, of the kinds of, 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 of issues that we deal with in psychiatry and a lot of what goes on around the kind of main clinical focus between a, a, a psychiatrist and their patient or a mental health care professional and their patient. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's one of the things I love about this show. You can get into the really, really complicated psychiatric discussions with other professionals, but you can also let the rest of us in. And one of my favorite things about coming in to work on a Tuesday is I know Prof Zabo is going to be recording Beyond Madness, so he'll sometimes pop into the office. Only problem is that I don't get any work done for half an hour to an hour when we sit there because we end up talking about all this stuff. I, I just want to let people know what we discussed was it last a week before last when you were in? Um, yeah. Because this is amazing. It takes us to the edge of where psychiatry is at the moment. And you obviously are reading all the journals. You're speaking to other colleagues of yours all over the world. So Prof. Zabo drops this clang on me the other day. He says, you know, he's been talking to some people in the U.S. about gut health. And, you know, such a, a, a huge proportion of, first of all, your body weight. And second of all, the 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 actual biomass of of material in your body is made up by these trillions trillions of bacteria that live in your gut and he says to me without even the slightest sense of irony could it be that we are just vehicles for these trillions of bacteria and that we think we're that we think we're the principal you know we're in charge we think we're the control and command center or could these things be in charge of us and then he takes it a step further and he says, what about mitochondria who live inside of our cells? Could we just be a vehicle to keep the mitochondria alive? And maybe they're actually running everything. How do we know who's in charge, Prof? Well, I think that's the interesting thing. How do we know what is in charge? And I think that particular episode, which dealt with uh, the gut and the brain, I think just to, 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 to put a weight to what you had mentioned, I think if you scoop up all of the uh, content of the gut mucosa and all the, the uh, uh, microbes that are there, I think it, it, it totals about two kilos. And somebody said, well, that's about as much as your brain weighs. And I thought, yeah, that's about right. You know? So who is the brain? Is it uh, what we think uh, in our heads or is it a little bit lower down in our gut? And so I think in, 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 in that sense, the question is, and, and this is where the, the science is, is, is moving, looking at the gut microbiota, as they, mm. as they call it. And so we are beginning to understand that there is a hell of a lot that goes on in the gut that really is, is, is key in what goes on elsewhere in the body, not least of all in, in, in the brain. So this gut-brain link mm. is, is really interesting. And so the question really was, 
is the gut the new frontier of neuroscience? I mean, that yeah. is really the question. And that is the, the you know, and, and, and so we chat about that. In, and, and you also, you, you mentioned that the, the, the gut, bi the biome that is inside of our, our digestive system develops at exactly the same time as the brain starts developing. So there may be a link from the very beginning. And maybe you are what you eat, right? And maybe if we eat certain things, we can improve our mental health. Question about that. I I think that uh, the specifics still need to be worked out because the the gut microbiome is a very diverse uh, group of organisms, and I, I think they're still kind of mapping them. And you know the sort of precision that one would like to have if you have these uh, kind of uh, this kind of flora versus that kind of flora. Uh, what are you more likely to potentially suffer from, and what could you do? to potentially prevent that. So I don't think we've sort of reached that kind of precision mm. medicine in, in, in terms of how we manipulate the gut biome. But certainly I think it's moving in that direction. And I think there's a lot of interest. And, you know, truth be told, in terms of pharmacological approaches for, for psychiatry, we've kind of hit a little bit of a, a, a T-junction. I don't really see much new coming out. And so that's where we're starting to get repurposing. Of, 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 of existing drugs. So like ketamine, for example, and we've had a couple of episodes on, on ketamine and, and, and the use of ketamine for depression. And I think it's increasingly accepted as a more mainstream for treatment-resistant depression. So we're moving into that usage for it, but it's basically an anesthetic drug that's been repurposed for psychiatry. The emergence of the psychedelic, specifically psilocybin, you're going to see psilocybin everywhere now. Mm. Um, I was speaking to a lady who, who, who's involved in uh, uh, manufacturing, so to speak, and she was telling me how Big Pharma is starting to get interested. Oh, yeah. And she was talking about the fact that they are looking at Lesotho mm -hmm. as a potential site to kind of experiment and grow. So, I, you know, I don't have the facts, so you, well. you, you, you'd, have to, you'd have to verify that. But, you know, once Big Pharma has an interest, you know that you're over the target. So you're going to see psilocybin everywhere. Yeah, magic mushrooms. I mean, I've heard people who've, you know, had terrible post-traumatic stress disorder, that kind of thing. They've, they've, because this stuff is illegal, it's still very difficult to get legitimate treatment. And, of course, only now are scientists starting to explore it as a legitimate form of treatment. Um, for a long time, it was very taboo, right, Doc? And, and also, uh, it's worth discussing this ketamine thing a little bit more in depth, and you do go into it in your episodes but I wanted to ask you, because this was a very controversial thing that came out just a little while ago, apparently not a big deal in the world of psychiatry, but this whole serotonin discussion, which was all over the news, you know, it was, it was some kind of bombshell when it dropped, that actually they haven't proven that serotonin necessarily treats depression the way that people just assumed that it did for the longest time. I think it was much ado about nothing, to be honest with you. And we have an episode coming up that looks at that specific issue. And the reason I say it was a much, much ado about nothing, it's because I don't think, and certainly I can speak for myself, but I, I'm sure that I can speak for many colleagues, I don't think that any psychiatrist actually ever thought, oh, it's low serotonin that causes depression. You know, that is very reductionistic. And I think that what we've understood in, 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 in psychiatry and, and in neuroscience generally is that things are really complex. Um, you know, the, the more you think you know, 
the more you find out that you don't know, yeah. actually. And so we just keep, you know, a good friend of mine in the States said, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting with the Hubble telescope and, and what have you, the more we sort of look out into the universe, the deeper we look into our body. So technology is taking us in both directions, out into the universe and deeper into the body. And I think you mentioned the mitochondria earlier. I mean, these are the powerhouses in your cells. And I mean, there are whole journals dedicated to these uh, components of, of, of cells and, and looking at what their role might be in specifically uh, a psychiatric illness amongst sure. others. So all of a sudden we're sort of getting into the cellular level. So when we start talking about, oh, it's a substance called serotonin and that's, you know, a low serotonin causes depression. No, 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 no. That, that's, that's very reductionistic. But I think the, the, the concern there is how it was presented, which kind of suggested that, oh, so therefore, what are these medications we call antidepressants, which, which, which work through serotonin? Mm. This is all nonsense. And the fact of the matter is one has to be very, very careful because whilst antidepressants might at a superficial level appear to be manipulating neurotransmitters, you have to then ask the question, but what do neurotransmitters do down the line? Mm. So I speak about a, a, a cascade of events downstream that are happening that we haven't necessarily fully understood. What we know is that some patients do not respond. Mm. What we know is that some people respond to placebo. What mm -hmm. we know is that some people do respond. So I think for us, it's more a question of, of, of matching. And remember, serotonin is not the only neurotransmitter involved in depression. Yeah. There's dopamine. And coming back to, to, to ketamine, there's, there's glutamate. Mm. And in fact, when you start looking at ketamine, and, and, and how that actually works, then you start getting into potassium ion channels and what have you. you know, this, this, this is complex physiology. And I think so we're, we're, we're going deeper in, in order to understand the pathophysiology of, of, of depression. And then I could get into talking about brain-derived neurotropic factor, which, you know, impacts on, on, on the brain and you actually get brain shrinkage in certain you know, parts of the brain when you're depressed and then it kind of comes back again. So that in fact, what we see is that brain cells are, are, are neuroplastic. They yeah, can actually that's, that's, die and they can regenerate. That's quite a new discovery. I mean, I remember when, when I was learning in, in, I don't know, just because I was interested in textbooks of the time, you know, the sort of late 90s, they, they were telling us, no, 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 you're born with a certain number of brain cells. By a certain age, you've reached your full uh, count of brain cells. And after that, all they can do is stay living or die. And you don't ever get new ones. And they also don't ever change their functions. Of course, since then, we've discovered that's complete nonsense. Um, brain cells, nerve cells in the gray matter of the brain and the spinal cord are actually extremely, as you say, neuroplastic, adaptive, constantly reaching out to other cells for new connections. And, and you're, you're essentially like a self-healing computer in some ways, right? Exactly. And I think that this whole <clears throat> issue of, of, of depression being neurotoxic, actually, where it actually you know, does something to the brain and the antidepressants actually assist in reversing that. Hmm. So, you know, the, 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 the paper on which the media kind of leapt, so to speak, um, has, has come in for quite a bit of criticism mm -hmm. um, because I think that as a, as a discipline, one always has to be very careful about the messaging in terms of how you translate scientific data. And let's accept that all scientific data is flawed. 
I mean, nothing is perfect. Sure. So there will be limitations and there will be criticisms. The media won't necessarily pick up on that. What they'll do is they'll just get the headline, yeah. the soundbite, so to speak. Low serotonin does not cause depression. Mm -hmm. Therefore, why have we all been taking antidepressants over all these years? It's all been nonsense. So I think they've kind of leapt to, to, to that assumption. And there hasn't been a measured uh, uh, approach to, to kind of just looking at it. What did the paper actually say? What, what, what but, does the profession actually think? But prof, and what are the implications? You're so right. I mean, the media just, they, they really distill everything to the point where it's absurd. And nobody's reading these papers except people like you. So thank God you can explain it to us on a show like this. Otherwise, we'd be stuck. Um, do you think that we have a problem in South Africa or in the world? I mean, we know Americans in particular are hugely self-medicating and we know that doctors in america unlike here you know your patient goes to you in, in the u.s and they say to you i want this because i saw an ad for it yeah. um, whereas in south yeah. africa your doctor prescribes stuff and you can't advertise those medicines like you do in america do you think we yeah. have an over prescription of certain drugs in this country and and this is controversial also because maybe we have too many people these days who are being diagnosed with things which may be very mild I mean, I hear every second or third person saying to me that they've got anxiety. Now, I mean, anxiety is part of the human condition. It's not something that needs to be treated. It's something that needs to be dealt with in the course of normal human existence. Who decided that being happy and not anxious is meant to be the goal towards which we all strive? Well, I think that you're touching on something very important, which is the, the medicalization of the problems of living. So one has to be very careful that a symptom doesn't become a disorder. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know that for every disorder, there is potentially a treatment, which could be a pharmacological treatment. Right. And so you see the, 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 the sort of movement from an experience of an emotion to a medication can move very quickly if one takes a very tick box approach to how you make diagnoses and you're not looking at the, the context of the individual that you are actually dealing with. And so I think that when you look at percentages, I can't remember the raw percentages of, of, of people on antidepressants or the <clears throat> millions of pounds being spelt by the, spent by the NHS in, in the UK on antidepressant prescribing, mm -hmm. but it is. I think in, in the order of about 13% of American adults might be on antidepressants in, in in the United States, and, and you'd have to say to yourself, wow, that's, that's a lot of people. Is it necessarily appropriate? And so one has to be careful as a professional that you don't rush for the script pad. Because let's face it, when you're dealing with the difficulties of life, it's complex. And you know when you want to um, actually start to address some of the issues that might need to be addressed, it takes time, it takes work, and you don't get immediate relief from what you're necessarily experiencing. So I can understand where there may be a pressure and we come back to this direct to consumer advertising. I mean, it's, it's incredible in America, actually, if you watch television, um, the amount of direct to consumer advertising that is really actively promoting uh, uh, medication and they're telling you the consumer what you potentially are experiencing and what you need to expect and demand of your practitioner. So there's this pressure there's this consumer pressure that is taking place at the same time. And I think it comes down to expectations. What is your expectation of life? 
because you mentioned mm. it now. Is it that we should walk around in a permanent state of bliss and happiness? I think that's completely unrealistic. And I think that in order to experience happiness, there has to be some struggle. Of course there has to be. Yeah. I mean, you know, just as there has to be a darkness and light, mm -hmm. there has to be that balance. Yeah. And so I think in, in, in life, struggle, struggle is part of the deal. And that's not a bad thing because what happens with struggle? Generally, you learn your lesson, you grow, and you become a more functional, competent person, and then you maybe find more happiness. And so struggle and happiness go hand in hand, actually, if you think about it. Yeah, Prof, you know what? Because you're a psychiatrist, there are very few people I can speak to in, in, in terms where you can, you can speak both with you know, the alacrity that you do on, on the, the medicalization part of this and the diagnosis of actual conditions, uh, diseases. That's what they are. Right. And, and, then, and then some of these things which are either just excuses or social contagions or people's unrealistic expectations of how, how life should be. Um, I, I think that it's probably it's not told to enough people these days that actually life can be quite hard. And part of that, part of the, the, the joy of living is overcoming those hardships, which I think you just explained quite well. Um, there, there are a lot of people who are looking to solve every problem in their life or any discomfort, any non-perfect happiness that they encounter with a pill. So there's got to be a solution for everything in terms of some kind of pill. And we've now moved that into the mental health world. I mean, how many, how many new psychiatric diseases are there since you started practicing? How, how, big, is the, how big has the book got? <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that, 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 that is interesting for me is that if one takes the DSM-5, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it's in its fifth version, how the number of psychiatric conditions has has grown and, and and you kind of question that and you say well where were all these conditions before or are we just getting better at understanding people or are we broadening the medicalization of difficulties that people experience with everyday life mm. and we've kind of got a diagnosis for everything and if we're not careful everybody is going to 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 land up with a diagnosable condition and then eventually what does it mean what does it mean? And I think that as psychiatrists, we have to be very careful at not falling into that trap. And it's not to say that there aren't a percentage of people who genuinely and obviously have diagnosable conditions for which certain treatment is absolutely necessary. So there's no issue with that. I think what the concern is this kind of spectrum approach where you're saying, well, you don't quite meet the criteria for this condition, but it's on a spectrum. And now suddenly lesser forms get brought into the spectrum and actually almost become equivalent to the sort of mother disease, so to speak. And so one has to be careful that you get this diagnostic creep. I've just come up with the mm. term diagnostic creep where you're kind of, you know, adding more and more and more. And then eventually, where do we land up? And so I think that as a society, we do need to be mindful of that. Um, just coming back to something you said about life is hard. On one of my episodes coming up, which deals with self-help, I quote Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled. He's a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And uh, his opening sentence is, life is hard. Yeah. And it is. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that, hey, there will be challenges. And that's okay. Because in order to grow, you need to be challenged. I mean, if you want your tree to flourish, what do you generally do? You cut it back. Mm -hmm. You prune it. You challenge it. And it grows beautifully. 
So challenge, so I'm using the tree as a metaphor, I think it's an important metaphor. Yeah. Um, I think that challenge is actually central to growth. And in growth, you will find contentment and satisfaction and potentially happiness. But happiness must not be the goal per se. Happiness is a consequence. Happiness yeah. is, is, a, is a consequence of how you live your life. And that is dealing with challenge, rising to challenge, testing yourself and prevailing actually when you dig and ultimately saying, yeah, I'm okay actually. And there comes the happiness. I'm satisfied. I know Sipiwe's got a bunch of questions, but I'm on a bit of a roll here with you, so I want to keep going. So, Prof, what, what do you make of... Um, when, Sorry, I'm getting when, philosophical. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of giving I, I you a philosophy. I love this, life. but so much of this is about a philosophy, because if you don't have a central set of values or a philosophy, not only as a professional as you are, but as a patient, as many of us would be, uh, then you don't know how to regulate yourself, and you will look for outside ways of fixing things that are inside or inside ways of fixing that are outside. Sometimes you require both. Now, when I was a kid, I most certainly yeah. had some kind of ADHD, right? It just hadn't really been diagnosed or nobody gave a shit. But I was told I was an unruly, uh, undisciplined child who couldn't concentrate and focus for very long. I was certainly not put on any medication. I believe had I been medicated or certainly if I'd been over-medicated as a kid, I might not have developed the personality that I did. I might not have developed the interests that I did. I had to find many things to keep my brain busy. Constant distraction was always in the air. And if I found a subject that really interested me, I went into it down the rabbit hole and dug up everything I could find about that fact or about that subject. Now, I think there are so many kids who, because they're a little bit um, distracted, unruly, they have a little bit of this attention deficit disorder, which is widely misunderstood too, and I'd like you to clear that up. Um, they get put on stuff, or they get told that they're a problem, or that they've got a problem, and they, they don't develop, the per they become a bit numb. They don't develop the personality that they may be required to develop, or that they inherently have. Um, just because the adults, whether it's their parents or their teachers, don't want to put in the extra effort that that child might require in terms of attention, in terms of being given a project that they can really focus on and, and, and do something amazing with. It's an excuse. It's become convenient to diagnose a child with this, this or any other problem and then kind of just give them medicine so that they quiet down and they're easier to control. What do you think of that? Well, I think, again, you know, we come to the balance between prescribing for the child who really needs it. Sure. And I think that when you're assessing a child, so when you work in child and adolescent psychiatry, you've got to look at the family. And you've got to look at the context, the environment from which the child emerges. And I think you've touched on issues of, of, of parenting. Now, obviously, you know, when you do have a child with ADHD, it may be, for example, that the parents themselves may have had ADHD. So these things do often run in families. But you need to look at parenting in terms of how you manage the child. Even if you put the child on medication because they have got ADHD, you still need to look at parenting. Mm. And you still need to look at that family system and how it operates. And 
issues of boundaries and issues of structure and issues of uh, uh, predictability and how you manage difficult situations and how does the family actually come together uh, co cohesively to manage things. So I think that when you are dealing with children specifically and adolescents as well, you have to look at the family system. I do have a concern that there may be an overdiagnosis and an overprescribing of the psychostimulant drugs. And certainly we see it because a lot of people think that it's a performance enhancing drug. Now the truth of the matter is if a child has ADHD and you prescribe a psychostimulant, their performance will improve. But in fact, what you're doing is you're taking them up to where they need to be. So yes, it's enhancing performance, but actually what it's doing is it's normalizing. Okay. If you don't have the diagnosis and you take the medication, you'll get a stimulation from it because it is a stimulant, but your performance is going to hardly increase in reality, objectively, okay. when they've looked at the extent to which it really enhances performance. You may get the sense that you're going to perform better because you're taking a stimulant, mm. but in reality, the objective measure of the extent of performance is nowhere near what the person thinks is actually happening. And so one of the concerns is that these medications are being used for performance enhancement. We've dealt with that in a previous episode as well, because I think that is a concern. And you tend to find that in adolescents moving into university students. So we have to be careful that an inappropriate use of a medication doesn't undermine the credibility of the medication where it's needed for people who genuinely have a diagnosis and who need right. that medication. Well, so I think there are a whole bunch you, of issues you, that you know, come into that. You can't say that enough because here's Linda who clearly didn't hear us when I said it and now you've said it again and she's going, oh, Gareth, my niece has been put on some meds. Well, yes, we're not talking about your particular case and we did say there are people who absolutely need this stuff. Prof said it right at the yeah, beginning absolutely. of his answer. Um, are, there, are there smart drugs, Prof? Sorry, I just, oh, I just, sorry, I, I just want to jump in there. I mean, the psychostimulants are probably the most effective psychiatric drugs we have. I mean, if you see a kid with ADHD, I mean, I can remember from my days doing child psychiatry at, at, at Barra, it's now Chris Honey Barabonath Academic Hospital, and you'd see a little kid, six, seven, literally bounce and rocket into your office, mm -hmm. and they'd be all over the place, and you could just see the mom is like, geez, you know, what do I do with this? And here is a child who's got classic ADHD, you start them on the medication, the response is excellent. Sure. So if you had to ask me, you know, give me a drug, you know, that really, you know, you can say is going to work in psychiatry, chances are it's going to be that one. So yes, I hear exactly what Linda is saying. And of course, we're not talking about specific individuals. We are speaking very broadly, but I think that the individual comes from within that broad context. And one has to have a, 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 an approach where you are actually filtering all of your patients through the saying, what is the diagnosis? What do they really need? What else do they need beyond medication? And again, I come back to something which comes through in most of my episodes, the biopsychosocial approach. So it's comprehensive. You don't right. just start medication and say, we'll see you in a week or two weeks or three weeks or six months. It's much more than that. And that's where the work takes place. The medication is doing what it's doing, but there are other things that need to happen. And now I've completely gone off track and I no, forgot the no, question no, that no, you asked. Not at all. So the question I asked is, are there actual smart drugs in production? Because this is something I would be really keen to do. And I don't mind being the experimental gerbil or, or, or hamster in this either. I think if we can develop 
drugs that help people deal with 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 severe problems, which we clearly have been able yeah. to do. And you just mentioned the effect of these uh, these psycho what, what do you call them psychostimulants? Psychostimulants. <clears throat> yeah. Is it possible that we can we could develop neurotropics that are actually able to improve and increase the performance and activity of the brain and give people the kind of superpowers that, I mean, before were only available in movies. Is there any chance that this stuff may be developed or is it complete bunkum? I would not like to see those kind of drugs developed because then what are we becoming? I don't mind. And I think that, I think, well, <laughs> you might not mind, but I think if one looks at what are our expectations of ourselves, we are limited beings. And there's this constant push to get better and better and better and better. And yeah, I, I mean, I can understand that. But I think that what we really want to do is maximize individual potential as opposed to making them more than superhuman. Because then we're starting to move into a whole new discussion, which I've become a favor with more recently, which is this whole notion of transhumanism and how we augment humanity to make the human species more than what it was necessarily built as or designed right, to I mean, be. By, by, and now, by and now we're moving into a whole new not dimension. Only, not only medicine, then obviously we can talk about technology and whether it's, whether it's ever going to be possible Correct. for us to upload our consciousness or you know, to be able to, to patch language programs into our brain. Um, we, we know that well, medicine are, is a technology. Yeah. You know, meds, I mean, medication is a kind of technology. It's sure. not in the sort of wires and, and, and IT sense. Technology, but I think it, it really begs the question where do we need to go? Where do we want to go? What are our expectations of ourselves as humans in terms of we've got to push beyond the limits constantly mm. and get more and better and superior? All right, well, superior to what? Just don't, um, don't, stand in, <laughs> don't stand in the way, Prof. If you find any of these, I'm willing to, I'm willing to be the guinea pig. All right, so, so Simpiwe, right. I'm sorry, I've, I've given you like two minutes right at the end, but I know <laughs> you've been sitting there so patiently. I know you've got questions for Prof, and you get to see him every week. Hopefully, she's, like been, hopefully she's been fascinated by the conversation. Right. She said, okay. I have, I have. Um, Prof, I, since you guys have started season three of Beyond Madness, I'm actually curious to know what you guys are going to be talking about in this season and what you guys are going to be up to. Well, I mean, we've already released the uh, uh, first two episodes of the new recordings, and um, this week's was on abortion. And so we took abortion as an issue, and we were looking at, you know, what, what is abortion actually, and looking at psychological uh, consequences and some of the implications. And I think that what you would find is that we took a nonpartisan approach. We just kind of looked at the subject objectively to see what it was. Obviously, we've got the one on serotonin, which I've alluded to. Um, we've got one coming up that looks at aesthetic or plastic surgery and body image. So mm -hmm. what's the relationship? And I think that that is something. We've done one on animals and healing, and we specifically looked at the role for horses Equine-assisted psychotherapy. We've uh, obviously done one on the gut and the brain. Um, we looked more recently, and that'll be coming out on on burnout. Burnout's a kind of a buzzword, and compassion fatigue. What happens when the healers are burnt out? Who heals the healers, and what are the the implications for the patients? I want to take another look at dying and palliative care, and how we actually deal with dying. 
Mm. Um, I had wanted to to really look at the use of psilocybin because there is some um, experimentation coming out, or should I say experimentation, there's some research coming out. And in fact, the whole psilocybin issue is really being pushed quite strongly by Johns Hopkins in the United States, which is a major medical center. So sure. it really has gone mainstream. We're going to look at corporate mental health, and that kind of ties in with burnout and, 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 and compassion fatigue. Um, self-help and psychiatry, so we're looking at that. We're going to do an episode on gender dysphoria. Um, we've That's also you. got you're an episode lined up. You're definitely not steering away from the controversial stuff. I mean, abortion, gender dysphoria, <laughs> uh, compassion fatigue. And, really... enough? and therapy. When is too much? When is enough? You know, what is the balance? And I think that is really the key word for everything that I, that I, that I, that I do. It's really about where do we find the balance? in terms of how we do anything and how we look at anything. So, you know, we could take the issue of abortion, which in certain settings is highly controversial, very emotional. And I think you will find that if you listen to the episode, it's actually dealt with in a very balanced, rational way, which allows you, the listener, to think for yourself. So there's nobody preaching to you, you must think like this or you are like that. We, we, we kind of stay away from the partisan issues and we just try to look at it objectively so some people yeah and then of course we also want to look at mindfulness that's another buzzword you know the you yeah. see a lot written about mindfulness so we want to look at mindfulness and, and and mental health and lastly but not least religion and spirituality and psychiatry wow. you know there's a there's a sense that we are moving from the biopsychosocial to the biopsychosocial spiritual hmm. and it's interesting because what is psilocybin psilocybin actually gives you a spiritual experience and suddenly you're seeing psilocybin everywhere so what is that telling you people are looking for something spiritual yeah. and maybe we need to reflect on ourselves as, as as humans coming back to gareth's issue about the superhuman and me saying well what about the risk of transhumanism and this whole issue of spirituality so you see a lot of these episodes come together with a with a with a with, with links that you wouldn't necessarily overtly see but when you actually get into it you're saying wow they are all interlinked, actually, in their own way. And that's great, because it's not the, that I set out to do that, but that's how it's working. So, Simpira, I hope I've answered your question. That's very comprehensive. Thank you. <laughs> well, Maybe said too much. No, not at all. You know what? I could talk to you for another three hours and not get bored, and this is part of the problem. I wanted everyone to hear what I get to do on a Tuesday when you walk into the office. Um, it's really it's so, it's so great to be able to spend time listening to someone who's spent their entire life um, trying to figure out how the human brain works, trying to figure out what we can do to improve our mental, emotional, and, and, and biological well-being, frankly. Um, and you are, you're one of the best, which is why our podcast series is getting awards, why it's being mentioned in all kinds of publications. Um, and congratulations on two amazing seasons and a third, which has just started, um, I think we're only just getting our toes wet on this stuff, and you really are the, you're the you're the leader in this country when it comes to this stuff. So I'm thrilled to have you doing it with us. Well, that's very kind of you, and 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 it's fantastic to have a platform to really just talk about things that I enjoy talking about with colleagues who I enjoy talking to, and if I can get information out there that people can find of 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 benefit. And more, I think really what's important is that it just gets people to think. Yeah. to think about things. I don't have to give you the answer, but in your thinking, you may find your answer. And I think that's what's important. And it also enables you to have more meaningful conversations with your psychiatrist or your healthcare practitioner, whoever they might be. 
because you come in as a better informed person and then you co-create your healing. Absolutely. which I think is important. Absolutely. Well, listen, a big thank you again to Adcock Ingram OTC, the sponsors of Brave. These are the guys who make it possible for us to uh, put together this amazing podcast series. And Absolutely. it is because of the really interesting and unique partnership that we have with them. You know, they don't tell you, Prof, what to do on the show. They don't tell no. you what no, to no, cover. No, no. They, wa- they want to promote this, this idea of, of holistic health. They want to promote the idea that we need to talk about things which are sometimes very controversial, sometimes uh, even about the, 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 the pharmacists themselves. You, you've interviewed a couple of them on the show. And, yes, and we have. Are, we have, are, and we'll be playing those clips as well. These are the people at the, at the coalface when it comes to dealing with these Absolutely. things. And, and really, Adcock Ingram de- deserve all the, uh, the credit for this. They're doing a tremendous job of getting people to talk about and to destigmatize so much around mental health. Yes. Th- these conversations were not yes. possible. You know, you were having them in very closed circles 20 years, 30 years ago. Now people are talking about them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, thanks to you guys for making it happen in terms of the practicalities. I have a great team around me, Dory, uh, uh, you know, Aaron and, 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 and the crew. So I'm very well supported by Cliff Central, but certainly Adcock do not at any point ever get involved in, 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 in the content or, or, or the kind of guests I have or the line that I take. And that's fantastic. I have complete freedom and they obviously have complete faith in the fact that I will deliver uh, a product that they are comfortable to be associated with. And so, right. absolutely. Well, 100% right. We love it. Go and listen to Beyond Madness. And we chose that title. Prof chose it especially because he knew it would be a little bit titillating. So go and listen to all of the different episodes of Beyond Madness from the very first episode in the first season right up to where we are now on episode two of season three. And you will find yourself thinking about things that you didn't even consider before. Thank you very much, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. Always good to see you on cliffcentral.com.